You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together this afternoon. We turn to the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 to 13. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as you find it in three different places. First of all, we turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 34 to 36. Thereafter, we're going to turn to 1 Kings 15, 1 to 5, and finally 2 Kings 8, 16 to 19. We begin then with 1 Kings 11, verse 34 to 36. And there the word of the Lord comes to Jeroboam, but I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, 
may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I choose to put my name. And then we turn to 1 Kings 15, 1 to 5. In the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Then we turn to 2 Kings chapter 8, 16 to 19. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word in our text for this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, one of the surest signs that we are into another Christmas season has to do with lights. As usual, there are lights everywhere on houses, buildings, and streets. And almost every street in our town or city has at least some homes that are festooned with lights. Why some homes are so bathed in light, color, and trappings that people come from many miles around in order to view the spectacle. Christmas is very much a season of lights. But why? Some, like Scrooges, dismiss it all as nothing more than ancient superstition and humbug. But you know, there's more to it. For it is a fact that the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was a light-filled occasion. Think of the shepherds out in the field, watching over their flocks by night, and the glory of the Lord, it says, suddenly shone around them. And think of the star that directed the wise men from the east to Bethlehem. Or think of John's gospel that opens with the announcement that the light that shines in the darkness has come. 
Truly, there is no shortage of light at the birth of Christ. But why is that? Why is there so much light at this special birth? Have you ever given that any thought? Have you ever tried to unearth the reason for it? Well, beloved, it has to do with David. King David again. Last Sunday, we directed your attention to a very foundational passage in the Old Testament to Samuel chapter 7. And in that particular passage, the Lord promises David three things, a house or a line of descendants. He promises David a kingdom, an area over which to rule. And he promises David a throne, a place from which to rule over all. And at the same time, the Lord God amplifies all of those promises when he says that these things are going to be forever. David, he says, will always have a house. David will always have a kingdom. David will always have a throne. Obviously, when you think of that, you cannot help conclude that they are mind-boggling and startling promises indeed. And there are also promises that in turn evoke all kinds of questions. How's this going to be? And what does all of this mean? And, and one more thing, how do we know that those promises really last? After all, the world is filled with dead promises, promises made but soon forgotten. And so how can we tell that God remains mindful of these promises as time marches on and as more and more events unfold? Well, beloved, the answer lies in a refrain, in an expression that keeps on repeating itself in the Old Testament. And the expression, it's this, a lamp for David. As you keep on reading in the Old Testament, this expression tells us that, that God has not forgotten his promises to David and to his house, that they remain on his mind and on his heart, that they're still an integral part of the divine agenda, that they reveal so much about God and his marvelous ways. And so let us on this Advent, this third Advent Sunday, examine this particular refrain. I preached to you on the theme, a lamp for David. Or if you want an alternative, God's faithfulness in the midst of much human unfaithfulness. And we shall see that God maintains this lamp in spite of a divided kingdom, a divided heart, and a divided house. So in spite of a divided kingdom, heart, and house, God maintains a lamp for David. Well, beloved, David receives those glorious promises of a house, a throne, and a kingdom, but time marches on. It marches on through his reign as well. It marches on through the reign of his son Solomon, and thereafter we enter into an entirely new kind of era, the era of King Rehoboam. 
And many of you know, especially the children among us know, that King Rehoboam spells trouble. Big trouble. The misery starts as the reign of Solomon comes to a close and, and as it descends into a pit of idolatry. The Lord says that Solomon did not keep his commands and because he didn't keep them, he's going to tear the kingdom apart. And a subordinate, an underservant, so to speak, is going to receive most of Solomon's kingdom. And as for Solomon's son, the only thing he's going to get is one tribe. One out of twelve. And the only reason that he will receive it is for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And that, beloved, is exactly what happens. Solomon dies. Rehoboam succeeds him. And as you know, Rehoboam is very short on wisdom, but very long on pride and arrogance. He refuses to reduce the onerous taxes on his people with the result that ten tribes rebel against him under the leadership of Jeroboam. And so the kingdom is torn apart. Ten tribes follow Jeroboam and make him their king. Two tribes, which actually are only one tribe because Judah dominates way over Benjamin, are left. And they're ruled by King Rehoboam. Humanly speaking, you might say, the nation of Israel as we have known it thus far is no more. The glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod. Darkness descends over the land. And at the same time as this happens, questions arise, many questions. And a lot of those questions have to do with the future. What's now going to happen to the Lord's people? What about God's covenant? What about God's promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and later on, even more specifically, to David? What about the coming of the great Messiah? Where, oh where, are we headed? Questions and more questions, but where are the answers? My beloved, in part... You can find an answer in that first text of ours in 1 Kings 11, the verses 34 to 36. And you will especially find the answer in those words of promise, David, my servant, will always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. The continuation, you might say, of God's promises to David are represented and they're symbolized and captured by a lamp. A lamp will keep on burning, keep on shining. No matter what, the flame will not go out. And when you think of it, beloved, is that not a wonderful Advent promise? 
It comes to the people then and it comes in a sense to us today as a special kind of promise. For it speaks, it's a promise that speaks of God's power. If the people had jumped to the conclusion that God was no longer minding the store, if they now assumed that God's arm had suddenly grown slack and weak, if they had concluded that God no longer cared and for Israel and was fed up because of Solomon's sins, they're wrong. In the raising up of new kings and in the demotion of old kings, we see that God is still in control. He still rules. The lamp speaks of his power. But it also speaks of something else. It speaks of God's love. Earlier in 2 Samuel 7 verse 15, the Lord had promised, but my love will never be taken away from David as I took it away from Saul. God's love, God says, remains. His covenant love, that love that we mentioned last time, that, that chesed, it keeps on throbbing. Solomon's love and the love of Solomon's people may grow cold, but the love of this God never grows cold. It remains warm and constant, sure and certain. Because the love of our God is not fickle. It's always steadfast. And the love of God that surrounds our lives today shows its basis and its substance already here on the pages of the Old Testament. And so this lamp speaks of love as well. But you know, it also speaks of one more thing. It speaks of God's faithfulness. Earlier to David, God had said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And now we're reminded here that God does not forget his eternal promises. By declaring that a lamp will remain before me forever, he is underlining the fact that he remembers, that he, he stays on course. He doesn't change. There's this big theological word which we sometimes use. We say, God is immutable. He doesn't change. His word is the same. He is the same. His promises remain the same. Our God is the sure and the steadfast God of the covenant. And as a matter of fact, beloved, when you think of it, he's the only rock of stability in a world of change and uncertainty. Unlike the God of the Greeks who are always changing their minds, unlike our human relatives and friends who so often fail, ignore, or sometimes even betray their words of promise, and unlike the circumstances of life, whether health or wealth or freedom that are always in flux, our God 
doesn't change. He's the anchor of our souls. And his faithfulness surrounds him. And it surrounds us. But do we always realize that? Do we always learn from this and work with it? I think of King Jeroboam. You can see after our text, the Lord promises Jeroboam in the verses 37 to 39 that if he walks in his ways, then he will be with him and he will build him a dynasty just like he built for David. In other words, if Jeroboam will build his life and reign on God and will make him his anchor, then the blessings will flow. And God will show his goodness to him and to his posterity. But does he take up God's offer? Does he seize hold of it with both hands and run? We know from later events that he does not. He spurns God's promises. He spits at his power and his love and his faithfulness. And unfortunately, he's not the only one who does that. Also today, there are covenant children who carry God's promises, but who go their own way. They don't bother to build their lives on this God. They're always busy trying to build their lives on themselves and on their own selfish ambitions and their vain pursuits. And where does that end up? In ruin and disillusionment. Broken lives and empty hearts. Oh, beloved, how much better it is to take our God at his word. How much better it is to build our lives on his promises, promises of life and support, of forgiveness and salvation, of renewal and eternal life. You know, you can strive under the umbrella. You can strive under the umbrella of God's love and power and faithfulness. But time marches on. As we said, King Jeroboam goes his own wicked way. And in the process, he does an abominable thing. A thing that echoes like a sick refrain throughout the Old Testament. He sets up golden calves in Bethel in the south and Dan in the north. And those calves are going to compete with Jerusalem and with the temple. And the result, beloved, is that life in the ten tribes has barely started and it already begins to turn sour. And as for the nation of the two tribes, it's not much better. King Rehoboam is a failure as well. Almost just as idolatrous as his neighbor. And his kingdom suffers too. 
but he dies. Some would say fortunately. And a new king is crowned. King Abijah takes it over. A new start is made. But, alas, he soon proves to be a chip off the old block. For as it says in 1 Kings 15 verse 3, he committed all the sins his father had done before him. He's just as compromising, just as idolatrous, just as wayward as his dad. Often it's a compliment to be just like your dad. But it depends on what kind of dad you have, right? And if you have a dad like Rehoboam, it's not a compliment to be like him. And so what's the problem? Well, read on in verse 3 of chapter 15. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been. King Abijah suffers from heart disease. He has a divided heart, Scripture says. A less than devoted heart. Part of that heart loves the Lord, and part of that heart loves the world. And it can't really make up its mind as to which comes first and which comes second. You see, he's not single-minded in his devotion. He's not wholly committed in his heart to anything. Spiritual heart disease. That's not just an ancient problem. That's a modern one as well. You know, so often when someone's life goes off the rails, we look for the causes, and what do we identify? Well, we identify things like wrong friends, abusive parents, worldly entertainment, of course, bad genes, and too much. Too much freedom, too much time, and too much money. You know, there are always a host of factors that can be identified, dissected, and condemned. But yet in the process, we often overlook the most basic cause of them all. And that's all about the condition of the human heart. You know how many references there are to the heart and to its condition in the Bible? There are 570. And what that shows you is that unbelief, waywardness, idolatry, and so forth are a matter fundamentally of the heart. It's not for nothing, you know, that the writer of Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. And so, beloved, when we evaluate and when we try to find out what is really going on in someone's life, we, we need to go beneath the surface and we need to get down, down into the area of the human heart. 
You may need to ask your son or your daughter, what lives in your heart? What is your heart full of? Where is your heart at? And maybe once you've done that, you can show them a better way. You can challenge those hearts. You can confront them. You can expose them. And something else, you can pray that if those hearts are sick and weak, that the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will give that person a new heart, a heart transplant. Isn't that what David prayed for after his sin with Bathsheba? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Yes, and the Lord obviously heard and answered that prayer. For what does it say in our second text? As the heart of David his forefather had been, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. King David's scripture says, with one exception, has a devoted, committed heart. And King Abijah is urged and implored to use him as his model. But did he do so? It says his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God. No, he didn't use David as a model. He didn't use his grandfather. He used his father. And what now? Is that the end of God's patience with David's descendants? Is it now exhausted and run its course? No, beloved. For look at verse 4 of 1 Kings 15. Nevertheless, and that's a beautiful word here, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. There's that lamp again. The Lord remembers his covenant with David and because of it he gives King Abijah a son who will walk in God's ways. The birth of King Asa is promised. And you can see that of him it says in 1 Kings 15 verse 11, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Never mind dad, never mind granddad, I'll remember my great-grandfather and walk in his ways. 
And there you see it. The Lord keeps on working on His redemptive program. And even divided hearts cannot stop Him. But then what about divided houses? We turn to our third text in 2 Kings chapter 8, the verses 16 to 19. And it describes a time somewhat later. Rehoboam gave way to Abijah. Abijah gave way to Asa. Asa gave way to that wonderful name, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat gave way to Jehoram. We're now six generations removed from King David. A lot of time has passed. And you may know by now that the passage of time doesn't always serve God's people well. And so it's here. About King Jehoram, we read in verse 17 and 18 that he was 32 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the kings of Judah? No. Israel. As the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, there you see it. You know, King Abijah, he has a divided heart. King Jehoram, well, he has an unbelieving heart. Things have progressed from bad to worse. And something else has happened too. For notice here that, and this is a story about the line of Judah, but who pops up but Ahab and his house and the fact that Jorah marries a daughter of Ahab, and that represents, beloved, bad, terrible, disgusting news. Jorah has married into the worst possible family. He now gets the worst conceivable father-in-law, and surely he gets the world's worst mother-in-law in Jezebel. And who knows about his wife? But she's a problem too. And the result, he does huge harm to the house of David. He effectively divides that house. You know, up until now, the house of David has been a kind of mixed bag. But, but at least it hadn't come under the influence of the nation of the ten tribes directly, nor under the influence of King Ahab. But yet here, all of that changes. Joram allies himself with the house of Ahab. And he walks in all of the evil, disgusting, degenerate ways of that house. He departs completely from the ways of the house of David. And he becomes thoroughly corrupted. So what now? As you read this, you think, well, surely this is it. The end has now come. It's game over. 
God is finally going to wash his hands of this people and this nation and this house. But does he? No, beloved, he doesn't. For read verse 19 of our third text. Nevertheless, again, nevertheless, for the sake of David, his servant, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. And why not? Because he had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. There you have that lamp again. You see the light. In spite of all the darkness, the light, says the Lord, is still shining. The Lord in His great faithfulness, He, he keeps it oiled and lit and glowing. And of course, He could have extinguished it many times. The Old Testament is filled with a superabundance of reasons for doing so. But God keeps his oath to David. The covenant that he had made in 2 Samuel 7 that we saw last time, that covenant stands and the lamp burns on. And as a result, beloved, when we come to the opening pages of the New Testament, we should not be surprised to read about the fact that the Lord our God lights up the fields of Ephrathah. That a special star appears in the east. And neither should we be surprised to hear John call the Messiah the light who shines in the darkness. And nor should we be taken aback when later on Christ himself says, I am the light of the world. You see, the lamp of David becomes the light of the world. Yes, and one day soon, he'll be the only light, the great and glorious light, you know, in Revelation 21, verse 23, we are told about the new Jerusalem. And one of the distinctive aspects about the new Jerusalem is that the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it or in it. Now, why not? Because as it says, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And who is the Lamb? Revelation 5 verse 5 gives the answer. The Lamb is none other than the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. Today, Jesus Christ lights up our lives. Tomorrow, he's going to light up the whole universe 
the entire creation. And why is that? Why is there Advent again this year? Why is Christmas soon to come? Why all the celebration? Why is there light today? Because our God has kept His covenant with David. Because He's refused to allow sinful men to derail His divine plan of redemption. Because His plan isn't even finished. For another greater, more glorious advent is surely coming. Because our God is faithful, beloved, forever. And all of that's a reminder to us that, you know, a truly festive season isn't the product of parties galore or presents unlimited. A truly festive season comes about in our hearts and lives when we direct those hearts and those lives to our God to his most astounding person and to his great, wondrous and abiding deeds. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.